what's going on everyone thank you for joining us for another episode of our podcast i'm les and i'm mo and this is the les and mo show Hey, what is happening, everybody? We hope that you've been well in the last week. We've got another nail-binding episode for you this week that involves four missing women in Yosemite National Park. Um, These women were eventually found, but we're going to dive into that in just a minute. But for now, here is my favorite (laughs) co-host, Mo, to give us the rundown. What's going on, guys? Thank you so much for joining us and being here for another episode. As always, if you're watching this episode on YouTube, please like, comment, and subscribe. Or if you're on your favorite podcast app, please follow us and give us a rating. And again, thank you so much for listening. With that being said, let's get into today's episode. We're talking about a case of four missing women in Yosemite National Park. This case is really bizarre and took some major twists and turns before the police figured out what was really going on. Before we get into the details, let's start from the beginning. In February of 1999, friends Julie Sand, 15, and Silvina Palesso, 16, were eagerly awaiting the 12th of the month because they would be leaving their homes in Eureka, California, with Julie's mother, Carol Sand, to go on vacation. Before they could start their vacation though, Julie had a cheer competition at the University of Pacific in Stockton, California. Before they could head to Stockton, the three had to fly to San Francisco, where Carol would rent a 1999 Pontiac Grand Prix before making their way to Stockton on February 12th. Things went really well for the trio at the cheer competition, so they then proceeded to head to their next stop, which was Cedar Lodge in El Portal, California. They had a lot of fun along the way and stopped to take in the views and took lots of pictures to document their trip. On February 14th, Valentine's Day, they would arrive at Cedar Lodge, which is situated on the western slope of Yosemite, and they had planned on staying there for a few days so they had plenty of time to explore the park. They spent the following day hiking trails and making friends with other visitors and a park ranger that they had ran into several times that day. They would eventually return to the lodge that evening where they had dinner, then rented a couple of VHS tapes from the front desk to watch later. (laughs) And for those of you who do not know what VHS tapes are, they're basically a brick. (laughs) And on that brick is a form of video. Yeah, that's how we watched movies back in the day, if you didn't know. But yeah, the next day on the 16th, the girls were scheduled to meet Carol's husband, Jen's son, at the San Francisco airport to accompany them to their next stop in Arizona. They had planned to explore the Grand Canyon while he was in work meetings. However, the girls never arrived at the airport and Jen started to worry, but he figured maybe they had caught an earlier flight and would be waiting for him in Arizona. When he tried to get in touch with them after he arrived in Arizona, he couldn't reach them. He called Cedar Lodge, and the front desk receptionist explained that they had done an advanced checkout. They further explained that when the cleaning staff had gone to the room, there was no sign of foul play or anything really out of the ordinary there, besides a few left-behind items and a missing blanket and pillowcase. They never left their room, or they had left their room keys um, behind on a desk, and their vehicle was no longer on the property. 
Next, Jens alerted the police, who were quick to arrive at the lodge. Upon investigation, the police found nothing too unusual. The beds weren't made, and there were towels on the ground and one swung over the shower curtain rod. But their personal items were gone for the most part, and there was no indication that this was a crime scene. Police were on high alert, but they had assumed the trio had left and headed towards the airport, but that maybe they had gotten into a wreck. It was a cold February after all, and it had recently snowed. During their search, the police never found evidence of a car accident involving the women. This is when a manhunt began to find the missing girls. Local police, Yosemite Park Rangers, and volunteers began searching the immediate and surrounding areas. Since there was no evidence of a car wreck, those involved couldn't help but speculate that maybe the woman had wandered off a trail in the park and got lost. So search teams, they started there. For four weeks, the area was thoroughly combed and still there was no sign of the women or their rental car. By this time, the case had been handed over to the FBI. Agent Nick Rossi became the lead on the case. He stated to the media, At this point, we have not yet uncovered evidence to allow us to determine conclusively whether this is a tragic accident or a criminal act. However, just two weeks later, the case was handed off to FBI agent James Maddock, and he would tell the media that he was certain the women were victims of a violent crime. There was still wasn't any evidence at this point, though. They talked to hundreds of people and followed up on thousands of leads, but to no avail. Jen's sons even put up a $300,000 reward that produced nothing as well. Wow. One thing I just want to say, we haven't really done any episodes on it, but National Forests or, you know, in the U.S. mainly, there's this whole phenomenon about, like, people just going missing in national forests in the u.s it's a it's a very big phenomenon yeah. too it's not just like one or two people here and there oh, if you really look every into year. it yeah it's crazy how many people go missing in national parks yeah a lot of times people just like you'll be with someone and they're literally a couple of feet away from you and you turn around for one second and look back and they're gone, gone. yeah sometimes they never find the person in some cases that person will end up miles away from where they originally were without any recollection of how they got there. Like, it's insane. And it's people of all different ages, too. Yes, adults and kids, yeah. Little kids. It's so freaky, guys. We're going to do an episode on it. Yeah, Um, I was actually even thinking we'd make it like at least one or two episodes per season we do on this. Yeah, this, I think it's so fascinating. Yeah, there's it's this crazy. whole missing 411 phenomenon that we follow yeah. and like to listen to. And um, yeah, we definitely need to do some Absolutely. episodes on this. But also, though, on this in this case, Jen's son, though, this family definitely has yeah. some money. I mean, a $300,000 reward. Yeah, back he was in, a businessman. What year was this? 1990-something. Sorry. Wow. 1991 yeah i mean 99 sorry (laughs) so it's just insane to me how i don't know back then they have they had cell phones back then right yeah well i I guess they had the bricks on the person yeah no they didn't this was the motorola yeah the motorola (laughs) like little nokia ones and little nokia yeah. yeah but they definitely look like they have money i mean they were going from place to place on a private plane I'm pretty sure that they rented a plane, right? Or like a pilot or something? No, it was just commercial Normal flights. Airlines. Oh, okay. Yeah, commercial airlines. But yeah, they, him and um, his wife, Carol, 
they owned some kind of business and yeah, it they was were well really off. big. Yeah, yeah, and they were really well off. Yeah. All right, moving on with the story. Yes. So by the middle of March, hopes of finding the woman or even finding them alive started to dwindle. On March 18th, the worst fears of everyone involved with the case and the woman were corroborated. A hiker had stumbled upon the remains of a burnt car. He would notify the police and they would confirm that the license plate on the car matched with the rental car Carol and the girls had been using. The police notified the FBI, who would arrive on the scene the next day. They noticed the vehicle was burnt so badly that there was no upholstery remaining in the vehicle that you could see from the front of the car into the trunk area. The inside of the car was completely destroyed. This is when the agents opened the trunk and discovered two very badly burned bodies. One coroner would recount that the bodies were so heavily damaged that when they tried to pick up the pieces of what looked like bones, the pieces would turn to dust in their hands. The coroner, along with the help from dental records, was able to identify the two bodies. One was Carol's son. The other was Sylvina Peloso. With only two of the three women found, investigators were still on the hunt for Julie's son. A week later on March 25th, in Lake Pedro, an hour away from where Carol and Sylvina's bodies were found, Julie's body was also discovered. Her body had clear signs of SA and was very decomposed at that point, but the examiners were still able to clearly see that her throat had been cut. She was also laid out on the ground in a very suggestive pose, leaving investigators to theorize that the killer was a very sick individual who has sexually violent fantasies and was motivated by them. The only evidence found was DNA and an orange fiber left on Julie's body. The police and FBI had worked together to question many possible suspects. They questioned all the employees at Cedar Lodge to try and establish some sort of timeline for the woman. The officers arrested two employees of the lodge separately and brought them in for questioning, but neither of them would pan out. So they moved on to looking into men and women with histories of assault, sexual deviancy, and drug use. When Carol's wallet was discovered in Modesta, California by a college student, the investigation took a new turn. This opened up new possibilities for police to really help the investigation. One night in Modesto, a police officer made a routine traffic stop on a vehicle with no license plate. As the police officer approached the car, the driver jumped out and opened fire on him. The police officer was injured but did survive. The driver turned out to be Modesto resident Michael Larwick, aka Mick. Totally sus. I yeah, I mean, why are you, why are you, you must be on edge if you're jumping out right away and start shooting at a cop dude. yeah sounds like you have something that you are hiding sir or yeah. running from but the police they were stumped as to why Larrick would have done this but they'd soon have him in custody after looking into Larrick's background they discovered a violent and devious past the police would receive a phone call from an anonymous source while mick was in custody the caller stated to the police to look into Mick's half-brother Eugene Rufus Dykes. Both the men looked like very promising suspects because they both had a history of violent assaults and kidnapping. Eugene was actually already in custody at the time for a separate incident, so it made him easier to track down and question. Eugene was in jail because of possession of a firearm that went against his probation. The two were interrogated for days on end. Larwick wouldn't cooperate with the police and eventually denied any involvement in the case of the women. However, he had been arrested and charged with another crime that took place not far from where Carol's rental car had been discovered. 
Eugene, however, would state that he was involved in their disappearance, but wouldn't give up information as to where and why. He would even sign a confession, but he still left investigators wondering what happened because he wouldn't talk. While the two were in custody, the FBI received a letter that was postdated just a couple days after the women went missing. There was a map drawn on the paper and writing that said, we had fun with this one. This was actually what led investigators to the location of Julie Sun's body. The FBI was convinced at this point that they had their two suspects in custody. They would examine this letter and search for fingerprints, and they actually did find a partial print located on the stamp of the letter. But this fingerprint would be run through a national database and would come back with no matches. It didn't even match Eugene or Laura's fingerprints either. So a saliva sample was taken from the letter and it also came back with no matches, but it was positive for being a male's DNA. While searching Larwick's vehicle, an orange fiber was discovered along with some strands of hair. The two did not match any DNA from the girls, but the orange fiber did match the orange fiber found on Julie's body. Now the police had evidence to connect Larwick and Eugene to the homicides. However, the fact that no DNA evidence matched and the fingerprints didn't either, the agents realized they had the wrong suspects and were being led on a wild goose chase. The only reason they found a match with the fibers is because Larrick and Eugene had found the woman's belongings randomly on the streets in Modesto and then they sold them. They were cleared as suspects because of this. Now the investigators had to start over at square one. With no new leads to go off of, investigators worried that they might not be able to solve the case and give those involved closure. So the investigators returned to the lodge to ask more questions. They found a new suspect at this point. After looking into him, they found a laundry bag with two articles of bloody clothing. He was also the late night restaurant cleaner at the lodge. He didn't cooperate with police and he was pretty belligerent with them while he was being taken into custody. He also didn't have a solid alibi for the night Carol, Julie, and Silvina went missing. Upon running fingerprint and DNA samples from this new suspect, they discovered that there was no match with him either. So this was another dead end, and the police were waiting for a break that finally came in the form of another tragedy. Four months later on July 22nd, a Yosemite park ranger stopped by the cabin of 26-year-old Joey Armstrong. She was supposed to meet with her friends the night before, but she had failed to do so. Instantly, the ranger noticed there was a struggle that went inside the cabin, and Joey's car was left right outside. There was no sign of Joey, though. Around her car, police discovered tire tread marks and sandal impressions in the ground leading away from her vehicle and the cabin. This indicated to the police that she'd been taken by force Following the tire tracks, more footprints were discovered and there were even impressions from a body that was dragged away. The footprints would lead to a nearby creek and this is where Joey's body was discovered. Like Julie, she was naked and laid out in a suggestive pose with evidence to suggest that she had been essayed. But most shocking of all was that she was decapitated and her head was missing from the scene. Rangers, police, and FBI agents were dispersed throughout the area to try and find witnesses and suspects. It wasn't long before a ranger discovered a man sunbathing and reading a book nearby. 
He had a backpack with him, and upon asking if he'd allow for the ranger to search the backpack, the man refused. His reluctance to be searched prompted the ranger to bring him in for questioning under the assumption that he was hiding evidence in the backpack. It would turn out that the man was in fact a Cedar Lodge handyman, Carrie Stainer. Stainer had no previous convictions and had only had a run-in with the law over marijuana two years prior. His backpack was searched and there was no evidence pertaining to the crimes found, drawing more suspicion since he had failed to allow for his backpack to be searched. He would go on to deny knowing or having anything to do with Joey Armstrong. Investigators requested a DNA sample from Stainer and he agreed. There was no evidence to keep Stainer in for questioning, so he was released. Soon after, the police wanted to ask Stainer more questions, so they went back to Cedar Lodge and they were told by the receptionist that Stainer had not showed up for work. That was really strange because... He never missed a day of work in two years. Mm. Mm. Sus. Yep. The manager would then take the police to Stainer's apartment where it was discovered that Stainer was also gone and so were most of his belongings. Mm. So this guy straight up ditched. What police did find though was one of the windows in Stainer's apartment directly faced the room that Carol and the girl stayed at when they were at the lodge. One window in particular faced the front door to their room so he was able to watch as they came and went. This was all police really needed to believe he was connected with the murders of Carol, Julie Sund, and Sylvina. With him fleeing his apartment, this really solidified that Carrie Stainer was responsible and he was in fact a serial killer. Now the hunt was on. Dang. So they're pretty sure they got their guy now. Yeah, I mean this guy did not know how to play it off. He no. got he basically got caught literally right by the uh, scene of crime. Yeah, and if I don't know, like sunbathing. I, yeah, what an idiot. Authorities wouldn't be searching long before getting a lead to his whereabouts. Luckily, a woman on vacation in Sacramento recognized Stainer as another guest at the resort she was staying at. She called the police to give them the tip, and soon they would arrive on the scene. When Stainer was called out by name, he simply stood up, put his hands behind his head, and was detained without incident. Which, that's pretty, I mean, bizarre for just a citizen that's not guilty of anything to do. Why would you just stand up and put your hands behind your head? You he know? knows what's going on. Yep, he knows he's caught. But the agents had Stainer right where they wanted him, but knew that they still had to have solid evidence to keep him there. So, while one of the agents was detaining and bringing Stainer into headquarters, another was there at the headquarters compiling evidence to solidify their case. Upon questioning Stainer, um, he was presented with pictures of the tire tread marks found at Joey's cabin and the treads um, on his Jeep. He was also shown the sandal imprints they had discovered as well. And it just so happened that Stainer was wearing sandals when they brought him in. <laughs> So they asked him to take his sandals off and give them to him, and he did, and they were a match. With all this evidence piled against him, Stainer asked to speak to one agent alone. He would then confess to his crimes and go into detail on what he did and how. He said that he came to Carol and the girls' rooms, knocked on the door saying that he was maintenance and that there was a water leak. Carol was hesitant to let him in because it was almost 11 p.m. But using his charm, Gary was allowed to enter. He, was then, he then separated the girls from Carol by brandishing a gun. 
He locked the girls in the bathroom and then bound and strangled Carol on one of the beds. He would then bring out Sylvina and do the same thing to her. He told police that he really liked Julie and that she liked him back, and that's why he spared her. He soon realized, though, that he wouldn't be able to keep her forever, so he took her to the lake and slit her throat after essaying her. He would then take the car and the bodies of Carol and Sylvina to the woods and set it on fire. Gosh. He's sick. That's, that's so insane. I mean... Yeah. How how did he think that Julie would actually like him? No, uh, maybe I, I mean she was obviously trying to play some sort of game to try to get away. Maybe try to get him to like her, so maybe like she gets a chance to. Yeah. Try to get him to like her that so that maybe she gets a chance to like run away or something, you know, play nice. I don't know, but could be. That's insane, man. Yeah. But um, for Joey, it was a little bit different because she fought back against Carrie very fiercely. Um, when she was at her cabin, she was kind of loading her car up with camping supplies because she was going to meet her friends the night that she was attacked. And Stainer showed up asking just like random routine questions about the trails and stuff. And she kind of answered them and then said, hey, I needed to get going. And she walked into her cabin. But... She left the door open behind her. So he's Stainer pulled up the gun and walked in behind her. And she and Stainer fought in the cabin, wrecking nearly everything in there before he was able to get her into his vehicle. So he was driving her away from the scene and she actually jumped out of his Jeep and started running into the woods. So Stainer would recall how he caught up to her and he was pretty much forced to kill her right there so he decided to do the same to her like he did to julie and he essayed her then he strangled her and then he uh decapitated her so very very sick yeah he obviously had um very evil fantasies yeah the fbi was able to link the partial fingerprint found on the letter they had received during the sun peloso case to stainer However, they were not able to connect the DNA sample found on the letter to Stainer. Upon questioning, Stainer would admit he had a child in Modesto spit into a cup in exchange for $5. He then used that saliva to seal the letter that was intended to confuse detectives. He would tell the agent that he started watching forensic television shows to learn how to outsmart his victims and the authorities. He said that he had violent sexual fantasies and got the urge to make them a reality. He would shave his body before the crime and wear hats to make sure he left as little DNA as possible at the crime scenes. He would also use a gun to scare his victims so they wouldn't put up a fight. But because of Joey Armstrong fighting so fiercely, he wasn't able to cover his tracks. Literally. Stainer would also confess that if he hadn't been caught, he would have continued killing women because he would always want to overpower women and kill them. On December 12, 2002, three years after his reign of terror began, Stainer received the death penalty. Bye. Yeah, goodbye to you, sir. <laughs> Cheerio. What a messed up guy, man. Yeah. And, uh, uh, yeah, very, very messed up person. Clearly took advantage of the situation he had at the lodge. And I wondered, too, when I was... Going through all of my thoughts and my thought process with this episode, had he not been caught, 
because of Joey Armstrong, he would probably still oh, live yeah. in that same apartment at Cedar Lodge and he would still be privy to women coming and staying at the lodge. So this could have been another like Jeffrey, like Dahmer, Dahmer yeah. kind of thing, you know, like it, what a, I, it's not a great thing that Joey died, but it's a great thing that she fought like she did because she's the one who got him caught, you know? Right. So, and we don't know if he had done anything before the yeah. Peloso and Son case there could either. Be plenty, yeah. But who knows, yeah. And he just won't admit to it. It's absolutely sick when people have fantasies like this and they can't figure out a way to overcome it, like maybe go to therapy yes. or talk to someone about it, but then therapy. they actually end up acting out in real life and hurting people and that turns out to be a shit show so yeah just know that if you have those kinds of thoughts you can get help you can um find ways to cope and to make it not as prominent so yeah just get get help therapy is amazing so (laughs) just do that with that being said this will bring us to an end to another episode thank you so much for joining us we appreciate you guys and as always, if you're on YouTube, please like, comment, and subscribe to our channel so you can get a notification when we upload. We're, we're posting episodes every Sunday. And um, if you're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, Amazon, give us a rating and follow us. Yep. We appreciate you guys so much. You're the best. The, the more you know, know, the less you fear. fear. So, so tune in next week right back, back here. here.